welcome to this week's edition of Two Crickets in the Thorn Tree. I am your co-host, Gabriel Krauser, joined by Nicholas Lorimer. How's it, Nick? How's it, Gabriel? Yeah, hanging in there. Uh, so we are a little bit late this week, and there is a very specific reason for that, which is that Gabriel went on a bit of an adventure. Um, uh, Gabriel, tell, tell, tell me what happened, because I actually haven't heard the full story. Yeah, so this is a bit of a comedy of errors. I am uh, hunkering down for the lockdown on a farm, which is outside of Gauteng province. And last week, the Institute of Race Relations released its 94-page policy proposal document on how we can save lives and livelihoods in this time of crisis. And one of the first channels to reach out to ask us to do an in-depth interview on it was CGTN, China Global Television Network, then there was a bit of a rearrangement. Uh, I ended up doing it with one of their subsidiaries, I think, uh, Joburg TV. And they, I asked them a couple of times. They said they can't do Skype interviews. They're only doing in-studio interviews. But that I shouldn't worry. The studio is super uh, sanitized, and I'll be sanitized as I come in, just like everyone else is, and on my way out. So I shouldn't worry about catching it on the way in. And if I drive safely, it shouldn't be a problem. So I accepted that. Um, it's an essential service under the new regulations in the Government Gazette uh, to communicate with the media. And, you know, uh, I, I try to keep lighthearted about a lot of the work we do, especially like on this show. We sometimes joke around and try to have a good time with it. But we uh, after, we released that, after we released that policy document, Franz Crenier, our boss, sent out a message thanking us. And he said, one of the things he said was, you know, uh, the, the the policy proposals that we're making really would save lives and livelihoods. And and it gave me pause and it made me think that there is a real implied duty there to, to try and get the word out, um, to try and apply pressure to to all parts of society that we can reach, to 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 get the government thinking smarter, to get people thinking smarter, companies thinking smarter. Um, so that we can uh, weather the storm as best we can. So I thought I better do this. I've got to do this. Uh, but then comes the question: Well, how do you do it? How do you how do you drive across provincial borders? Um, well, being a journalist, aren't you exempt? So you are exempt, but how do you prove that you're a journalist? Like I'm very used to being in a bar, and people say, "What do you do for a living?" And I say, "I'm a journalist." And bizarrely enough, like that often gets me a lot of congratulations. Uh, before people know who I've written for or where I work. Just the idea of being a journalist seems to be pretty hip amongst the youth. Uh, I, and so they take um, you on your word. But the police can't be the same, right? And no, if someone not. if someone at a party is like, are you really a journalist? You can just whip out your phone and be like, well, look at this thing online, News 24, Sunday Times, Daily Maverick, Daily Friend, Politics Web, interviews on ENCA, CGTN, uh, MSN, uh, the CNBC, does that work? I'm not sure if that works. So I, so I try to reach out to the guys who issue the official press cards. I've never needed a press card. Um, it's a kind of creepily authoritarian thing, isn't it? A press card. Ugh. Yeah. It no, doesn't sit right with me. I mean, I've got plenty of media cards from events I've been to. But I was like, am I going to show them the Johannesburg Art Fair media card and see if they know the difference? 
So I was advised that that's probably not a good idea. So I reached out to the guys who make the press cards. They didn't answer their phones. They didn't answer their emails. In fact, the emails, you know, the emails bounced back immediately from the websites that they, from the links they have on their website. So then I tried SANEV, the South African National it, Editors Forum. It's comforting to know that in dark times such as these, uh, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, <laughs> definite, there's definite comfort and familiarity. So SANEF also didn't answer their phones, didn't answer their emails. And then, and so I asked our CFO what I should do. And she said, you know, if you need, we're very happy to help you, whatever documentation you need. But because I couldn't get any responses from those things, and some light Google searching didn't uh, give me a clear indication of how journalists are supposed to get their press exemptions, excepting to have press cards and have SANEF issued exemptions. I thought, you know, I called, I called the guys who were going to interview me and I said, I'm going to try this. I'm not sure if it's going to work. And they said, okay, try. So um, on this farm I'm at, literally, if you go out of the farm, you have to drive like a kilometer to get to the highway because the farm is quite large. Um, on the farm road, then you get to the highway, you turn right, and another kilometer away, you, there's a four-way stop uh, where you, and after that comes the town. And at the four-way stop, the police have been posted out, and the farm workers uh, have all had to have their certificates. They've been taking grain to the silos, millies to the silos, and so they told me that the cops are being pretty stringent. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go to that roadblock. And if I can't get through that roadblock, then I'm going to go back. And it's like 2K journey. It's not a problem at all. And if I can get that through that roadblock, then presumably I'll be able to get through all the rest. So I get to that roadblock and they say, okay, you've got no documentation. Why don't you go to the police station in town, in a small little town, and they will give you a form. You fill out that form. They'll stamp the form. And that'll serve as your permit. So I do exactly that. I get to the police station um, and it's a little bit hairy going inside the police station. I've got my mask on. I like sanitize my hands before going in. But then I don't have a pen to fill out the form. So I've got to take the pen from the cop. And I'm like seeing the pen as this vector, like in my mind's eye, it's like shiny <laughs> green with viral like load. The great plague bringer. Yes. And I thought, you know, if I get the virus from this pen and I give it to my mom, Oh my God, I feel terrible. Anyway, I fill out the form. I ask them to, and they, before I can fill out the form, they say, we have to verify that you're a journalist. So I whip out my laptop and I show them interviews that I'm doing, that I've done. And they can see that like, ah, oh, you're wearing the same jacket. I pull up my mask. Yeah, it's the same face. Can you show me ID? Yeah. Can you show me the names on the articles online? Yeah. They're like, okay, you're definitely a journalist. And I show them the invitation for the interview. They say, this is definitely legit. Um, so here's your form. I fill it out. Then I say, can you stamp it? And they don't stamp it. And I say, why aren't you stamping it? They say, we've got no stamp. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so, I suppose it's not vital. <laughs> so I get them to sign on the back anyway, take the form. I drive back to the roadblock and they say, this is perfect. Go through. So then I drive through and I'm, I'm chugging along. And then I go through a few small towns, a few bigger towns, and then I get to the main provincial boundary. And there, of course, is a blockade. And they pull me over and I see the army tent and there's army guys and there's police guys. And they look at the form and they say, ah, this is not a, okay, they check it out. I tell them the story. They say, no, this is totally fine. Go ahead. So I go ahead. And then I hit my first crisis, which is a toll booth. 
Oh, no. So I get to the toll booth, and I'm in front of the queue, and I pull out my wallet, and then I look through my wallet. How many other oh, cars were there on the roads? Not many, but there was still a queue because there's only one toll operator on ah. a two-lane highway. So it's like, you know, two, you know, so it felt like the usual arrive, two cars ahead of you go through. There was definitely a lot of trucks on the road. Like the trucks, you know, and this part of the world, most of the traffic that you see is trucks in any case. Yeah, um, yeah. And they're still going along. And and that'll be an important part of the story's conclusion in terms of macro uh, things to think about uh, in analyzing South Africa's political economy. But to stick with my personal anecdote, I get to the uh, toll booth and I don't have my bank card, so I can't swipe through and I don't have uh, cash, so I can't pay my way through. So the lady says to me, go to go to that other lane. Go park in that other closed lane, and I'll come and deal with you, Nana. So I go and park in the closed lane, and then there's a guy who sees me parking in the closed lane. He says, you can't, you can't be there. That lane is closed. I say, but she told me to be here. He says, but you can't be here. The lane is closed. I say, but she told me to be here. And this repeats several times. And eventually I just he says it, and I just don't respond at all. And I realized that the holdup is that it's finally started to get cold. So the toll booth operators, there's only one on my part of the thing, but there's like also from the on-ramp and there's also the traffic going the other way, they've got three. So there's five people kind of spread across this like 20 lane toll booth thing. And they are all busy negotiating who gets which heater in their little booth <laughs> compartment. Yeah. So I sit there for half an hour while the heater negotiations kind of, uh, uh, determine the, my flow. And I'm thinking to myself, like, how many other people in the country right now are struggling harder to get through a toll booth than through a national army-based lockdown? <laughs> I might be, I might very well be the only one. And I have been in this kind of situation before at toll booths. And usually you can just go down the queue and find someone else and be like, dude, please can I have 20 Rand as a gift? That's all it is to get through this toll and people will help you out. But because it's uh, social distancing, like no one wants you coming to their window. <laughs> Especially the milk of human kindness know. has been staunched. Who, who knows what's in your beard? You know, it could be a vector for all sorts of viruses. Exactly. Yeah, much even worse ones. So eventually, I EFT, I, I money wallet her some money, and then this is a classic South African moment. She asked me to money wallet her some money, so I money wallet her e wallet her thirty bucks, and then she says. After it's come through, she gets the SMS. She says, oh, I just realized I don't have any cash, so I can't pay for you to get through in any case. So I'm like, what? So she says, uh, yeah, and I can't go to the ATM because I'm going to be here till 9 o'clock tonight. So then I say, oh, of course, you're going to be here till 9 o'clock. Well, so then I can just go to Joburg, and then on my way back, I'll pay you back. And she says yes. So now she's got the 30 Rand as a profit, and I'll pay her back the 21 Rand when I come back. She says, that's fine. She lets me through. I go through. I get to do the interview. Did you just get say, shaken down by a toll booth operator? Yes. The only bribe I paid was to a toll booth. <laughs> this is very important. I didn't offer a bribe. I didn't realize it was going to work like that. I definitely wasn't going to bribe the cops, but that's how it ended up happening. I got shaken down by a toll booth operator. She was so sweet. And she even took off her mask to smile at me as I left. <laughs> With a very knowing grin. Okay. <laughs> okay, so chapter two is the interview. The interview is great. Um, the one, I, I've got to say, it was with Freak Robinson, 
who is the, a guy that I came to know as the f- face of Focus when I was learning Afrikaans as a, as a boy. Um, I would watch some of Focus, and he was there. And he also conducted the, he hosted um, the only presidential debate in my lifetime between F.W. de Klerk and Nelson Mandela. And that is on YouTube. And if you've got an hour to spare during COVID lockdown, like that is a moment in history that uh, that anyone inside of South Africa or outside of South Africa should check out. It was very intense. They were quite respectful. They were quite quite robust, um, uh, well managed debate. Questions from other media players. Also, some tricky things that I think uh, speak to future. Anyway, it's an interesting moment in history. So I was very happy to be interviewed by Freak, and it was a good it was, it was a good interview. Then I went back and I drove through Yeovil and town. I spoke to some sources, uh, some drug dealers, some kind of street dwellers. <sighs> and, and just one thing to say about that is that the CBD was more busy when I was driving through it uh, this week than during the unofficial lockdown from xenophobia, uh, from after the xenophobic attacks last year. Yeovil too, but they were, both, they were both quite quiet. It's not a comforting sign. No, no. So then I then I go back and everything's you know well and good and I feel like I've 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 done a good job and my and my and my mission has come off well until I get to the same provincial border going back the other way and they pull me over and they say can we look at your document they look at my document they say this is not correct you're going to have to go back and I was I was there for two I was there for three hours and overall. And it was kind of funny at the start, and then it got kind of stressful, and then it got kind of funny again. (laughs) (laughs) But how did you escape? Okay, so I escaped. Well, before before I tell the story of my escape, maybe a little bit about the other things I saw there. did Did they actually, hold on, did they actually say what was the correct thing that you should have had? If any of our listeners are budding journalists looking to travel across the country. Yes. And this is very important. Uh, one of the first things that happened is that the lady who pulled me over looked at it. She says, this is not the right form. She started shouting at me. She went over to the commanding officer. He saw the form. He was shouting about this form from 30 meters away. Like I could hear him. And he just came shouting all the way to my window saying, oh, this is not the right form. This is not the right form. So he's at my window. And then I try to be apologetic and sweet. And then... He, he, was, he was shouting, and then I started shouting, and then an army officer came over who'd been, like, smoking a cigarette, very relaxed, kind of saw this, let it go on for five minutes. Then he pulled his balaclava back down, put his helmet on, and with his gun over his holster, kind of came up to me and said, you, pointing at me, and then you, pointing at the cops, don't shout. You must talk very nicely to each other. So there was this stone-cold silence. And then the officers and I all looked at the at the army guy and we all said, yeah, you know, you're so right. We're all citizens of the same country. We've got to work together. Thank you very much. So I thought, great job by the army in that particular case. And the commanding police officer then went off to go to a truck that had just been pulled over that had a permit to show me what the proper permit is supposed to look like. Yeah. And what I didn't realize is that the proper permits are just issued by companies. Oh, and the company has to have its letterhead, it has to have a signature or something from the like boss of the company, and it has to say that this company performs an essential service and this employee is performing this essential service for the company, put the name, put the ID number, and put the conditions of travel, like should be traveling alone or whatever. 
Yeah. So, in a way, the private sector really has been outsourced to do the permissions. Like, uh, and I think that private companies probably have a lot more discretion to define themselves as uh, essential services than they realize. Now, if you're a really large company like Steers or or Unilever or whatever, then you're probably going to play by the most conservative version of the rules that you can imagine. Because if a lawsuit was to be brought up against you, you've got so much dosh that you could be sued for, for forcing your workers to work in undue conditions yeah. and so on. Yeah. If you're a little company, if you're like an SMME, you can probably quite quickly think of a way to define yourself as an essential service uh, to or to define some of your workers' functions as essential services um, in order to keep the wheel spinning. Uh, and that really is an important takeaway. And certainly if you're a journalist, like any, if you're writing, if you're a freelance journalist, you can just get whoever you, you, you want to publish the thing for to kind of write your letter, say you're doing this for us and go off and do it. And it doesn't, there's no connection to SANF. There's no connection to the press card. That was all uh, kind of, uh, I mean, that is how newspaper delivery got, vans are working, but that's because they've already got, if you're working for the IOL or Tissot Blackstar or whatever, you've already got those credentials. Uh, but for the rest, I mean, I think there's all kinds of room for maneuver for little town newspapers and all that kind of stuff. The town paper just has to issue its own permissions. Anyway, so one of the interesting things that I saw was a couple, a family that arrived that were white, and all of the police and all of the army were not white. And I could I overheard them having a bit of a discussion about that, like feeling a little bit worried. They were clearly working class, old car, old people. And the guy, I wanted to see how the guy's going to deal with it. So he, the driver goes into the police tent with a cigarette in his mouth, waving his arms around. And the commanding officer just had no time for him. He was out and like, you're going to turn around and go home. Um, and then his daughter came through sort of 10 minutes later in her 30s with a mask on. And she was literally bowing and rubbing her hands together and saying, you know, I just want to say what a good job you're doing, boss, and you're so good, boss, and Mr. Officer, sir, you're very, you're just doing such a great job to save our country, and you have all our gratitude, and please, can you let us go? And this hand-wringing exchange, there's this such a currency of South African exchange with police uh, for so many decades. It worked. And uh, 15 minutes later, but they were there for about half an hour, 45 minutes, um, Another, I suppose the other most interesting, uh, I, I watched about 20 encounters in like three hours. Uh, but the other most interesting one was the one that arrived just after me, which were six black people in a car, also not a great looking car, who were off to a funeral in case in, in, a, in another province. And uh, the commanding officer said, no, the Mpumalanga High Court is just, I mean, he didn't say which court, but it's the Mpumalanga High Court has just ruled you can't travel across borders to go to funerals. So you're going to have to turn back. And so then they were directed onto the island between the two highways to go back, just like I had been. And just like me, they said we're going to go, but then didn't go. And so I was like, I'm not going. Because if this guy lets them through, then he's going to have to let me through. Yeah, they have a much worse reason than you. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, I'm morally, I feel like they've got a better argument to go in some ways. But, but on the other hand, like public legally, health. Yeah. 
in, in terms of public health and legal, like I'm doing an essential service, funerals, non-essential service has been well, specifically ruled on. Yeah. So it's like, I don't like the rules, but like, you know, I'm going to play by the rules here. And, I, you know, if, if they get through, great. I'm very happy with that personally. And maybe that's irresponsible of me. But like they said, he said, you can't go to a gathering more than 50 people. They said, no, dude, we are the immediate family. Like we're not going to like a funeral to be like, that's going to be 100 people. It's like we, you know, it's a small thing. Yeah. But that was the case oh. in Pumalaka. It was the person's, uh, it was the son of a guy who died. And they were like, no, you can't go. Um, so after I figured out about how to, after I started my bureaucratic process to get my form, um, I saw some officers go up to them and then they zooted off back, going back the other way as if they had been directed home. But I could tell by how quickly they drove away that that isn't exactly what it was. And those same officers then came to me and we, you know, like looked at this. It was already dark and we sort of talked about the day and we shared generalities. And then one by one, the other officers left and the last guy stayed. He had a low rank, but he was an old man. And he turned to me and he said, I can see that you are trying to do the right thing. But if you stay here, you can be here all night. Why don't you just go back like those ones? And you go over the bridge there, turn right, turn left, turn right. There's a dirt road that takes you right past this blockade. And then you can get back on the highway and carry on on your way. So. Oh, dear. I mean, very sweet, but no. <laughs> Not what he should be doing. Yeah, but I don't know. You see, I think that... Okay, so here's what here's what anyone who studied political science or political theory will tell you. Um, and it's as old as Machiavelli, Adam Smith, and the ancients, in fact. The, and Hobbes. The, if the laws of the land line up with people's values, then it's going to be quite easy to enforce them. Yeah. If the laws of the land do not line up with people's values, then there are going to be reasonable folks in the police they're yeah. trying to make allowances because no, they don't believe in the rules that they're being employed to enforce. That there's uh, there's always at least a little bit of consent in all sort of uh, legal laws passed and how much they're complied with, that kind of thing. So a lot of South Africans just don't think it's reasonable to stop you from being allowed to go to funerals. A lot of South Africans mm -hmm. don't think it's reasonable to stop you from being allowed to smoke cigarettes or drink liquor or go to your work if you're going to be careful about it, you know? Well, it's exactly so why I, social engineering doesn't actually really work, right? Because when it's just, you know, when you, it's by definition trying to change society in a very fundamental way. And unless you've got a police, a huge police force full of completely ideological cadres, uh, yeah. you really can't do that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's why I think it's telling that this guy's older. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like he, you know, he's, he's committed to his value system. And I think he's, you know, having served in the police for a long time, presumably, he's seen a lot of, you know, cases where making allowances is seems like morally the right thing to do. Because so many, in so many yeah. ways, our police are set up to fail and have been for decades. I mean, especially if you're a black police officer and you served under the old regime, like, uh, you ju you've just got to know the difference between the rules and the rules that you have to enforce uh, because they actually make sense. Anyway, so... I, yeah, so I got my, so I suppose one of the sweet things is that I definitely became the court jester because I just kept debating. After the army officer uh, 
had said you guys must talk nicely to each other and then the funeral guys arrived and the commanding police officer had gone up to them and he was very apologetic and he's like i'm so sorry to turn you around but i have to do this it's my job i don't want to lose my job tomorrow i said to him you know why don't you talk nicely to me like that you just came up and shouted at me from the very start and then he said no no, no, no. i only shouted at you after you called me unreasonable and then i said no, no, no. i never called you unreasonable I just said the other officers who had already let me through other roadblocks are reasonable and their ruling was reasonable to me. And your re ruling is also reasonable to me, but maybe you're not taking into account some of the reasons that they were taking into account. And he was, and he was like responding exactly like you now. And then he walked away to the highway to try and get away from me. And I followed him and he said, ah, you must just go home. I don't want to talk to you anymore. You've been talking to me for half an hour, just talking, talking, talking. It must be your job to talk because you talk so much. But go home. I don't want to deal with you. So then I said to him, I know that's great. <laughs> I yes. said to him, dude, my brain lit up. I was like, here's my chance. I said to him, dude, that's exactly what I want to do. I'm going to go home. Home is that way, pointing past the blockade. So you're just going to let me through the blockade to go home. And then he said, no, no, no. I meant you must go back, not go home. And I said, no, officer, when you said go home, that was the most reasonable thing that you've said. Because if I go back, I've got nowhere to stay. If I sleep on the street, I can catch this disease. I can give it to others. That'll be a great danger. If I go home, like you said, then it will be very good for everyone. I'll be very safe. And he looked at me and he'd been so angry and stern with me the whole time. And we had another dead silence and he just couldn't help himself. He just started smiling. And I said, I got you there. Hey? And he said, ah, you almost got me. Almost. You must go back, not go home. <laughs> but then I could see, I could see that what a relief I was. I could see that this guy is like, it's just hundreds of trucks where it's like so tedious. You look at the form, you let them go. You look at the form, you let them go. There's no searching the trucks. There's nothing interesting going on. And if it's not trucks, it's like funeral goes that you have to turn back and kind of hope that it works out. It's heartbreaking. He clearly cared about these people in a way he doesn't care about me. So me, I'm like a, a comic relief and a debating option. So then he said, go talk to the captain. And now the commanding officer was little and the captain was big, majestic, a voice like old whiskey, uh... <laughs> kind of seemed keen to to talk about the yeah he was he was he was he was keen to muse so we mused about whether perhaps i might be able to get a digital permission from my boss emailed to me and then one of his underlings said no but the problem is we need a hard copy and we got into this debate about the hard copy versus the digital and then the captain put a stop to it and he said you know it's all very interesting but i'm very disappointed in you because you're a journalist and it's your job to tell people what to do but you don't even know what the right thing is to do and here you are making trouble for us so then i said no captain i'm very disappointed in you because it's your job to tell people what to do it's my job to give people information and i'm learning from you the right information but my main job is to find the truth and I thought the police's main job was also to find the truth, to find the truth of whether or not I'm a journalist, whether or not I was doing my essential service, and whether or not you can use different kinds of evidence. Then we got debating 
about evidence and truth and whether a police officer is supposed to find the truth or just follow the rules and whether the rules make sense or not truth. Dude, it was half an hour. Eventually, there were like 10 other officers around us and they were all chipping in their ideas. It was like the, definitely some of the most entertaining moments of their day and of my day. And eventually, I convinced them. They said the hard copy and the digital copy are different things. They can't be one and the same thing, so they can't be one and the same truth. And then I thought I'm in a hole here. But then I said there can be different windows onto the same truth. Did you, did you seriously drag an entire roadblock of police into a philosophical argument about the nature of truth? Yes, I did. Yeah, and yeah, I'm not sorry. Because we they weren't that busy, we, dude. We they don't pay you enough. <laughs> I don't know how much you earn, but it's not enough. <laughs> anyway, after that, they were like, okay, dude, this is enough. We can't do this anymore. Please go and talk to the commanding officer. And like, I could see that the syllogism that had landed in their head was if we let him go, then he'll go away. <laughs> and, and that was the argument that I really needed them to believe. And they and they finally believed it. <laughs> so then I said to the commanding officer, can I get a WhatsApp email? And he's like, yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. And so I got it from France and he let me go. And when he let me go, he said his parting shot was, you know, if only you had done this from the start, you could have been here for five minutes, but you were talking instead of listening. So you stayed here for a very, very long time. But now maybe you've learned your lesson. I said, thank you, officer. I have learned. I've learned so much. I'm a very slow learner, but eventually I've learned from you. <laughs> and then you made it home safely. All right. So what's the takeaway from your long rambling story about the, the, the trials and tribulations of traveling across lockdown? So I think one of the takeaways is that if you want to do it, try and get your permission in hard copy in advance. And it's very easy to do. Um, you just need a letterhead from a business and some explanation. And the, and the police are not looking too closely at it. Um, and, and that way you can avoid wasting their time slash getting into philosophical debates. Another takeaway is that like when I was in Joburg, I was in Joburg for two hours. I came across three illicit cigarette salespersons and I wasn't looking. People were just telling me, oh, you smoke. These guys are selling illegal cigarettes. I came across two illicit drug uh, liquor stores, uh, people selling booze. Which part and of town was this in? Huh? Which part of town was this in? Uh, Melville, Yeovil, and the CBD. Okay. And, uh, yeah, did. Yeah, so obviously some rich people have managed to stock up. But for those who haven't, I don't think anything's changed excepting that now you don't buy cigarettes from pick and pay. You buy them from somewhere else. And the trucks moving cigarettes and, and booze around the country, like no one is looking inside those trucks. So, again, the major companies, they probably don't have the right incentives to be trying to break the rules. Mm. Because the truck driver doesn't make more money, the head of procurement for the big, for Woolies or anything like that, they don't make extra money. Uh, but smaller companies where people really are more profit-driven, I am 100% convinced after this experience that they have zero obstacles to getting through. I also have 100%, you know, this Mpumalanga guy, he could have gone through to the Eastern Cape illegally, found some excuse uh, you know, find a friend who's a farmer or who's a pharmacologist or whatever to say that he's transporting some essential goods, but he didn't. He wanted to do it the legit way. If you want to do it the legit way, you might get hit. 
against a war, but if you're prepared to take the dirt around the corner and form, there's very little checking up on it. The form has to look right, but that doesn't mean it has to be right. Uh, you know, the, the argument about truth, the, the underlying point is the police are looking for the permits to look correct. They don't really care about the truth because they don't have the resources to really follow up in any real kind of way. Um, so this lockdown, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of that, is a joke. Uh, and it's really doing its number one job that is good is deterring people. As, you know, if you're not prepared to take the time to go around or find a way, then you're not going to travel. Uh, and that does slow down travel, and that certainly helps flatten the curve. But in well, terms of the does, particular regulations that they've put on top of it, it's, it's a joke. <clears throat> Yeah, no, uh, I think I think I pretty much agree with that. Um, but it does look like it has had at least quite a lot of effect in the fact that not a lot of cars were out on the road. Um, I mean, yes, it only takes one, but it does it does uh, still slow things down for sure. Um, yeah. So I'm not so so again the lockdown itself, great, but the particular rules and regulations that go beyond basic lockdown to picking apart essential services from non-essential services, saying you can't have booze and liquor, for example, that kind of stuff is just silly. Another thing that I want to point out is that we have had a lot of reports coming through of police brutality and army brutality. Now, what protected me from that, if anyone thinks it's my race, uh, they should go to the same roadblock that I went to. Definitely... Uh, there's no such thing as white privileges at any of these roadblocks. That's for damn sure. Um, I think it my interaction reminded me of high school. And and the sort of even when I see footage of, of army guys making people do push-ups and squats, that reminds me of high school too. We went to the same high school. That was a regular way of trying to get you to do your thing. <coughs> And the deeper point is, is Richard Kapuscinski put it really well. He uh, was the first Soviet foreign correspondent, and he went through every African civil war, basically, that there was. And he crossed, he crossed blockades where the, where the killing and the brutality was orders of magnitude worse than anything that South Africa has ever seen. And he, and he made it out alive every time. And he said there are three basic currencies of exchange at a blockade. First is time. And the bureaucrats generally start, or the army starts with more time than you do. And if you want to win on time, you have to prove you've got more time than they do. Yeah. Uh, and that's where being friendly and and having debates and catching them out where they're being illogical and accepting when they actually have a really good point and all that kind of stuff, that's showing you've got time. Time is not just TikTok. It's also like, how are you spending that time? Number mm. two is money. I didn't see any bribery. I think it'd be very hard to pull off bribes because of the cross-pollination of the army and the police force. I don't think our army has the same kind of habituated bribe-taking patterns as the police force, and I don't think the police want to be seen taking bribes in front of the army. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm saying that's a conflating variable that makes it more challenging than it usually seems to me. I hope you're right, but third, I suspect yeah. that uh, you know the army... They're not a, they're not, they're, they share a lot of things with the police. They're not a very... Uh, 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 or a well-run force or a particularly organized force. So I think that uh, while that m may initially be true, um, yeah. I think the, the rot may very quickly set in. Yeah, the th I agree. The third thing, the third currency of exchange is violence. And Richard Kapuscinski's point was, if you start engaging in that currency, if a police officer tells you to go stand somewhere and you don't stand somewhere, 
violence just literally at the level of who's in charge of bodies, who's in charge of the badness of, of, of how bodies are arranged, the basic alternatives to negotiated agreements about how bodies are arranged. If you begin to engage in that kind, then you open up an exchange where you're bound to the losing uh, unless you're very well armed, you know, well armed enough to beat off like 20 police and, and 30 army guys. And and who wants to shoot their way through a blockade? So so his advice, you know, he was like as a as a as a as a journalist, he always tried to go through blockades without armed guards. Mm. Because he found that every single time easier. And I don't wanna I don't wanna sound like I am victim shaming or victim blaming here. But it just is the case that in South Africa, as in a lot of the world where we know a lot about police brutality, the victims, people who get killed ultimately, often initiate that currency of exchange in terms of violence. Often don't put their hands where they're told to put their hands when they're told to put their hands there. They think they've got a good reason to do it or they think they don't have a good reason to do it. Or in the townships, people are being told to go here or there and they don't do it. And, and, and two things can be true at the same time. One is that anytime an officer shoots a South African outside of perfect regulations, like uh, a, a, a terrible thing has happened, even if it is inside regulations, there's no glory in shooting one of your own citizens as a police officer, the citizens that you're there to protect. So it can be true that there is police brutality in this country and army brutality in this country. At the same time, it can be true that citizens aren't always doing enough to keep the currency of exchange within time. And then the proper one that should come after money is the rules, is finding room to appeal uh, you know, if, 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 if a police officer really is doing the wrong thing, see if you can get a magistrate involved and so on. Those should be the currencies of exchange. It should first be time, and then it should be uh, appeals to to the legal system. And no one, I think, should be uh, violently disobeying police orders unless the police have already initiated some form of unjustified violence. Mm. Um, so, you know, for me, it was it was a comedic experience, and most of that comes down to how good the the officers were. But I did a couple of times in my three hours kind of see that I could literally just get in my car and drive. Like there was nothing physically obstructing me from driving away along the route that I wanted to go because of how they'd asked me to park. But I thought, imagine if I got in my car and just drove away, which would be the equivalent of so many people like getting orders from the cops to do this or do that, go back into your house, do this, do that, and refusing to do it, being like, well, I'm just going to carry on walking in the street. If I had gotten back in my car and I'd driven away, and I didn't get a bullet in the back of my head or in my tire or something awful like that, I would be extremely surprised. Because, you know, the way to beat the system, the way to get through is uh, as far as possible with your words and with your time and with your reason and, and by relying ultimately on the rights that you're endowed by the Constitution. Um, so I don't I don't know. I mean, it's a hard thing to talk about because I am shocked by some of the videos that I see of police brutality in this country. And I and I and I don't I don't want to be saying anything that kind of uh, I don't. I'm not an apologist no, I, for I, I, that kind I get, of behavior. I get what you're saying. Um, I think it's more it's more advice than necessarily what's right or wrong. I mean, it's not right 
for for cops. Cops are supposed to be professional, almost robotic like automatons who enforce the law exactly as it's written. But of course they're not, especially when they're badly trained and have low morale. Um, yeah. But and 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 in that situation. This, I think what you're giving is just advice, practical advice for how you can avoid at least most of the excesses of, of you know, uh, an aggressive, out-of-control police force uh, that yeah. in many cases is not is not doing what it should be doing. Uh, before we finish up, though, uh, because we are starting to get towards that time, uh, I would like yeah. to talk about some so an interesting thing and then some fun things. Uh, so the yeah. interesting thing is... Um, one of the best websites for uh, data on the COVID-19 uh, thing is you can go to worldmeters.info slash coronavirus. Uh, now, that's a really cool site. Most people have been using it. Uh, it has the total cases, the number of new cases today and yesterday, the total deaths for each country, um, and the number of new deaths so far in the day. And then also the number of reported recoveries, the number of active cases, the number of people in serious and critical. Now, the data varies in quality from country to country. Um, and they've just added two new columns, though, which are really interesting. Uh, and they are the total number of tests done and the number of tests done per million people in the country. So the places in the world where they've done the most testing per person uh, is a place like the Faroe Islands, which is, I think, in the North Sea. It's like uh, part of Norway, actually, I think. A little tax um, haven in the... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Iceland. Iceland as well has had an enormous number of tests. They've had 69,000 per million people. Um, so that's 7% of their population, basically. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Uh, a lot of small countries, obviously, high up here, small rich countries. Um, Switzerland, of the sort of slightly bigger countries, has had an enormous number of tests done, 17,000 per million people, which is about 153,000 total tests. Uh, South Africa, according to this, has done about 50,000, which is not a terrible number um, by any stretch of the imagination. And you can get a kind of sense of sort of, you know, how many undetected cases there are by how many of these tests come back negative. Uh, so, like, for example, in South Africa, we've done 50,000 tests, but we only have 1,500 positives. Um, whereas in a country like Spain, which is fast, I think, becoming, in fact, is probably arguably the worsted country in the world now. They've surpassed Italy in a lot of places. Um They've done three hundred and thirty uh, forty fifty five thousand tests, and they have one hundred and twenty four thousand positives. So that's what almost half. Half. Yeah. yeah, it's just under half. You know, of yeah. of their tests are coming back positive. So you can see that there, uh, there's an enormous number of people who are uh, who are getting sick still. Um, and and Spain is actually really looking not so great right now. Uh, the country that's currently the two countries that are on the lead with the most number of tests are apparently the United States and Germany. Now Russia is claiming to be in third place, but I'm a bit skeptical of that. I mean, I think it's theoretically possible. Uh, Russia claims it's done 639,000 tests, uh, which would put it third in the world, just above Italy. I'm not so sure. You know, Russia's not exactly known as a place that's very honest about these sort of things. Uh, but, you know, maybe it's possible, in which case, good for I'm them. I'm more confident than you are. Yeah, you are, but that's just because you, you, you love Russia uh, deep in your soul. Um, South Korea has also done a very high number of tests, uh, 435,000. 
Um, so anyway, if you kind of want to see, you know, what the real situation is, it's it's useful. Uh, take it with a bit of pinch of salt because it is, in almost all cases, um, officially reported statistics. There is missing data in a lot of places. Uh, but Coming it from is governments, and governments have political interests. Yeah, it is all sourced, uh, so you can see where exactly they're getting it from um, to see how how reasonable it is. So that's the interesting thing. I wanted uh, to say something about Italy quickly. Yeah. Uh, Two important things to note about Italy. One is, uh, as uh, a piece in The Spectator noticed, and as Anthea Jeffrey, one of our colleagues, noted, um, a sort of retrospective analysis was done on Italian COVID deaths, and they found 88% of recorded COVID deaths uh, uh, happened to people who had other underlying potentially lethal conditions. Um now, some of those conditions are like diabetes, not something you'd expect someone to die from, but uh, a majority of that 88% had two or three comorbidities or more. Uh, so it does that some indicator that, you know, usually if you die of the flu, but you have cancer, you're recorded as dying of cancer. But because of COVID special status, if you die, uh, if you have terminal cancer and then you get COVID sort of three weeks before your prognosis said you were going to die, then they'll record you as dying of COVID. So... That's one thing to be aware of. And another thing to be aware of is I just looked at a breakdown of Italian ICU bed usage by COVID uh, patients uh, by region. Only in two regions was it 100%, Lombardy and another one. In another four regions or so, it is quite high, like sort of 50% or above. But in the other 16 regions, it is, it is quite low, in sort of eight of them, it was, it was 10, roughly 10, 12, 15%. So it seems like part of Italy's problem was distribution, right? It had the healthcare, it had the ICU beds, but it just had them in the wrong parts of Italy to, to help everyone out. And it's quite hard to transport. Uh, you know, one thing people talk about is respirators, but another, something that people haven't been talking about is how many ambulances are there to kind of move people around. If someone's in a hospital and they go from being in a severe condition to being in a critical condition where they really immediately need a respirator or an ICU facility, like what capacity is there then to transport them uh, yeah. readily yeah. safely? I think, I think we, we tend to be seeing across most places that uh, the outbreak does really get localized in a place before the lockdowns manage to prevent it spreading. So um, in Italy, it was in Lombardy around kind of Milan, the north of the country. Um, and in other in other places in the world, so for example, the United States, uh, an enormous number of their cases have all come from New York. I'll give you the number in a second. Um, but actually, I'm just looking at the Italian data specifically on this website. And apparently, there is a study that's just been put out now, which suggests that the real number of people who could have been infected in Italy may be anywhere up to 10 million or even 20 million, if you take into account asymptomatic cases. Now, that's still yeah. very... Uh, unconfirmed, difficult to prove, uh, shaky information. But it suggests that, once again, one of the big problems with this disease is the rate at which it spreads rather than necessarily its lethality. Yeah. Um, and in a way, that would be good news. For Italy, it would mean that they've got great herd immunity now. Yeah. There's, the, uh, be so hard according for, to this... According to this, even if it is at 20 million, they're still not quite at, a, uh, at herd immunity, which would require about 40 million people to have had it. Um, so in other well, words, so the thing about herd immunity is like you've got herd immunity when the virus practically can't spread at all, but yeah, you've got that, some herd immunity when it's quite hard for it to spread because the R and the what the what the infection rate is 
R1.1 or R3.5 or whatever is still tricky to ascertain, but... So, so uh, to the, the, that 40 million number... Sorry, just, just to finish that idea, it, it, it means if every person that's got it is likely to infect two other people, which is rough, it, it's in the region, according to Johns Hopkins, of two and a half, um, then if one of those other people that you're going to infect is already got the immune resistance, then you're half as infectious, and if the two people that you bounce into that you infect both have it, uh, then you you end up becoming a dead end for the virus, and yeah. and that's yeah that 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 too would flatten the curve. So so um, that but not stop million. the but not stop the spread. Herd immunity is when the spread will totally stop. Yeah. Uh, the the kind of herd semi herd immunity, pseudo herd immunity. I'm talking about just flattens the curve. Yeah. So the herd immunity the number I gave of 40 million there is based off of basically two thirds of the population being yeah. uh, largely immune to it. So that point yeah. spread is just really difficult. Um, so that's that's some good news possibly. Also, it looks like the curves are really flattening in a lot of places that have been hit hard. Uh, in Italy, it does definitely seem to have slowed down a lot, uh, yeah. which is which is good news. Um, so about half of America's cases or a third of America's cases are in New York alone. Uh, 113,000. Uh, 113, um, so it is very localized in in the United States at the moment. And another 30,000 off in New Jersey, which is just across the, the river there. Um, so anyway, that's yeah. the interesting thing. But let's finish off with the, uh, the fun thing. Um, well, there's a couple of fun things. Uh, one is, uh, I don't know if you've heard about this. A lot of people are talking about it. There's a Netflix documentary called Tiger King. Oh my God, it's amazing. I can't believe we haven't talked about this, Nick. It's yes. amazing. So I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard many, many good things. Uh, it's about a guy who describes himself as a mullet-wearing, gun-toting, redneck, uh, uh, polygamist gay man who runs a tiger sanctuary, or allegedly a tiger sanctuary. He is Tiger King. He is Joe tiger. Exotic. His name is Joe Exotic, although his real name is Joseph Allen Malaldo Passage. I don't care. I don't care. His name is Joe Exotic. And, and I he, don't know if he's a killer or a hero. I, I haven't gotten that far. So so the, uh, the, the basic upshot of this thing is uh, this documentary follows his feud with another person who owns uh, a tiger sanctuary. And uh, it gets... It gets pretty exciting. In fact, it's so insane. Apparently, every episode is worse than, is, is more insane than the last. Just when you think that you've reached the height of, of, of uh, how completely off the chain it is, it goes one step yeah. further. So yeah, check yeah. that out. I, after, this, after this podcast, I'm watching another episode, just so you know. Yes, excellent. Because I'm going to paint a painting, and then I'm going to watch another episode. The, that's, that's perfect perfect balance in the universe. Um, the other thing is a, a fun personality... Uh, that I'm sure I've talked about before. He's an insane libertarian called John McAfee. Uh, yeah. He's famous for uh, inventing the first big commercially available antivirus software, which was the McAfee virus program, antivirus. Uh, he's no longer associated with that company. He hasn't been, uh, since, I think, since the late 90s or even early 2000s. Uh, so, but, so he's very wealthy, and he's also completely cooked. Uh, he does a lot of drugs. He's wanted for attempted murder in Belize, where he used to live. Uh, and he's quite Any the person. Please, please, yeah, please if, if you can identify Belize on a map without, uh, without cheating, uh, and you email us your answer, where is Belize? 
we will we will consider uh, naming you in our next podcast. Yes, very good idea. In glory uh, and, and showering doing, you in glory. So if you're really looking for something fun to do, go check out his Twitter feed. Um, he's been uh, so currently he's on the run in the Caribbean because he's running away from the American tax authorities. Uh, he uh, he's also feeding his pet parrot, who he calls Pirate Parrot. Uh, while he sails around on his yacht from Caribbean island to Caribbean island. In self-isolation for years. Yes, in self-isolation for years. His wife is actually quite an interesting character. She uh, was a prostitute he slept with in Florida and then decided to marry. Um, He also does a a lot of very (laughs) fun YouTube videos. Uh, He's currently offering a a, a $500 reward in cryptocurrency for the best photo of an abandoned city taken during the quarantine. Uh, so you can send that to him and he will give you money allegedly. <laughs> yeah. And usually we do not urge people to buy cryptocurrency. Instead, we urge them to buy gold, which, by the way, at $1,600 per finance has done very nicely for anyone who took our advice last year. We are not financial advisors. Please don't take our advice. But I think cryptocurrency is about to get big in South Africa. If we get foreign, foreign currency exchange controls and... Uh, prescribed assets, sort of, not now, but in the next couple of months to deal with the fiscal crisis that we're in. A lot of people are going to want to get their money out of the country and Bitcoin might be just a conduit to get out. I think it's, yeah. I, I've never been interested in Bitcoin in South Africa, but I think it's finally interesting again, potentially. Yeah, in fact, it, as it turns out, maybe the mad libertarians were right all along. <laughs> just like John McAfee. Yes. Um, if we're going to wrap up the episode now, I, I thought I'd wrap it up with a poem. Yes, go ahead, Gabriel. So the context of this poem is that it was written by a New Yorker who uh, uh, I'm just pulling it up. It, it seemed to uh, uh, drop off my, my line. He, he wrote this poem in 2003 and it was uh, kind of based on his friend who uh, Dean Young was another great poet based in New York, I think. Um, Tony Hogland is the poet that I'm talking about who wrote this poem. He's born in 1953, which is kind of my favorite year because it's the year that Stalin died. I think it's also the year that Queen Elizabeth II was coronated. Yeah, no, it's um, a good year. And, and it's sort of, it comes from a collection called On, On What Narcissism Means to Me. And it's, it's when Dean Young talks about wine. And I think that this time, this is a time when people are spending a little bit more time alone, a little bit more time with their families, maybe kind of savoring the, the drink that they take a little bit more carefully uh, because they're outside of the crowded bars and noisy clubs. And, uh, and, and, the, and the ending line is just such an important line for dealing with this crisis, I think. Uh, kind of act in a curious way. So here it is, uh, Tony Harlan's poem. The worm thrashes when it enters the tequila. The grape cries out in the wine vat crusher. But when Dean Young talks about wine, his voice is strangely calm. Yet it seems that wine is rarely mentioned. He says, great first chapter but no plot. He says, long runway, short flight, which as an aside is one of my favorite lines about wine. He says, this one never had a secret. 
He says, you can't wear stripes with that. He squints as if recalling his childhood in France. He purses his lips and shakes his head at the glass. 84 was a naughty year, he says. And for a second, I worry that California has turned him into a sushi eater in a cravat. Then he says, this one makes clear the difference between a thoughtless remark and an unwarranted intrusion. Then he says, in this one, the Pacific last night of afternoon strains the wings of seagull pink at the very edge of the postcard. But where is the cabaret of rent checks and asthma medication? Where is the burgundy of orthopedic shoes? Where is the chablis of skinned knees and jelly sandwiches with the aftertaste of cruel little league coaches and the undertone of rusty station wagon? His mouth is purple as if from his own ventricle he had drunk. He sways like a fishing rod. When a breast is hurt, when a beast is hurt, it roars in incomprehension. When a bird is hurt, it huddles in its nest. But when a man is hurt, he makes himself an expert. Then he stands there with a glass in his hand, staring into nothing, as if he were forming an opinion. It's a lot about how I feel about COVID. I feel hurt and I feel like we're hurting and trying to be an expert. I don't know if, I don't know how many times it ends up just being staring into the, staring into the darkness mm -hmm. as if forming an opinion, but really I, I, I still don't have one. Very good. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. If we don't laugh, we'll cry. So anyway, with that, I think uh, we should leave our listeners for another week uh hopefully we will get one done on friday this time but uh with how exciting our lives are these days with a uh, quarantine and the end of the world and all that uh no promises but we will do our best and uh keep keep the flag of liberty flying keep supporting the irr and thank you very much for listening